0: Very glad to be with you all this evening. It's an evening I've been looking forward to for some time now. Let me give you a little bit of background on how this meeting came about and uh, how I ended up here, both in South Florida and with you all this evening. Uh, I grew up at Fort Lauderdale Bible Chapel, um, now Fort Lauderdale Hope Bible Chapel. During my time there, there was a a good amount of turnover with uh, the the saints there who was coming from the neighborhood. and whatever set of circumstances happened, it ended up that I was one of the only young people there, uh, from about the time I was 12 till the time I was 18 when I went away to college. Uh, this is not a great situation for most people, but for my case, it ended up working out uh, beneficially for me. The Lord has His ways, He knows what He's doing. And in my case, what ended up happening is that I ended up receiving all the attention of the elder men, uh, at the assembly. Um, we can't say what it did to my social skills, but when it comes to uh, sitting under the men and uh, what their decision-making was, what their patterns of study and behavior were in the assembly, I, I got to learn firsthand. Um, this has cuts both ways. Um, when someone's being noisy in the middle of a meeting, everyone knows where to look. But when someone is wondering, hey, who's a young person we can give this assignment to? Who's a young person that uh, we can teach how to do this job? They would also look my direction. And so it was uh, both a difficult circumstance, but a beneficial circumstance. When it came time for me to decide what I wanted to do after graduating, uh, attending at, um, Florida International University, I talked with the, the men in my life that I trusted, uh, the elders and some others from around the world, Um, and I knew I wanted to serve the assembly in some way. Uh, It didn't have to be full-time or anything like that. I just wanted to be useful. I wanted to be beneficial, Um, and my original design was to stay at uh, Florida International University and pursue my master's there in the religious studies department and sort of coach my, my, my own way through how to study the Bible, how to teach the Bible and be useful there. Uh, thankfully, those same men who had guided me uh, throughout my my time growing up gave me the right advice at that time and said, why are you going to teach yourself how to teach others? That's only going to lead to problems, and it's not the wisest way in which if you're going to serve people, you need to be trained how to do that properly. And so when it came time to decide what I was going to do after graduating from Florida International University, I decided to go to the Master Seminary In California, this is a normally a three-year program, but uh, I spent five years in California finishing that while working um, full-time to pay for school. And last year, the end of last year, I returned back to Fort Lauderdale, and so that's how I ended up back in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, Mr. Malcolm got a hold of me a few uh, meetings ago. I believe it was a missionary meeting or something, and said, "Hey, what's your story? What's your deal?" Um, And so I started telling him a little bit. I said. We need to talk. I have questions for you. I said, okay, you don't say no to Mr. Malcolm. I I, I knew that growing up. And so we got got together for breakfast one morning, and he asked, um, tell me about yourself. Tell me what you're doing. And I told him uh, what I was doing at the time, my studies, what I wanted to do at Fort Lauderdale now that I was back with the saints. Um, And I mentioned that I had been putting together a few lessons, things that I wanted to uh, make available to the saints at Fort Lauderdale and anywhere else. And uh, he said, hey, send me some of that. I said, okay. So uh, I sent him um, one on how to study the Bible. Uh, this is a course that I took at seminary called hermeneutics. That's a fancy big word, and for some reason theologians like fancy big words. What it means is the art and science of interpreting a text. We'll see that in a few minutes. So I sent, uh, I sent him a document that I created for a 16-week course on how to uh, how to define the rules of how to interpret a text. And so he said, hey, this is great. Uh, Can we plan on doing something where you can come share this with the saints? And I said, great, let's do it. Um, When is your next 16-week slot? So we decided to start with one session and see how it goes. Um, So I've kind of boiled down that material. And so with that, I want to say there are some things that I've taken time to condense. And so what I want to do is leave a good amount of time for question and answering because there are things that will make sense to me. And condensing down, I want to give you the opportunity to say, "Hey, clarify this, hey will you expand on that a little bit more and that's what I've developed uh, the slides for so that you can see what I'm going through and then you can say at the end of that time uh, let's let's discuss this a little bit more and so let me start with this a tale of two emoji I don't know if emoji is the plural for emoji or it's emojis, uh, but let me start here with Something I came across at my time at Florida International University. There were quite a bit, a good amount of Bible studies going on on campus. And the quality of the Bible studies varied. And that includes the Bible studies that I was a part of and also the Bible studies that I was leading. Some of them were good and some of them were not as good. These are the textual descriptors of some of the facial features, some of the gestures I would see people making. When I asked the question, um, "Hey, what does this text mean?" For the most part, I would get what uh, this guy on the left. There's an article in the Atlantic published in 2016. This this emoji on the left. His name is Shruggy. Here's how the article describes Shruggy. The meaning of the Shruggy is always two, if not three or four fold. Shruggy. Represents nihilism, bemused resignation, and a Zen like tool to accept the chaos of the universe. It is Sisyphus in Unicode. That's to say, the approach to studying the Bible that says, we don't really know what it means, but we'll figure out what it means for us. That's shruggy. The story of the emoji on the right is a, a little guy. Uh, We came to call Contemplative G. Let me give you a quick backstory on how we came to that ridiculous name. We were doing a series of Bible studies um, on um, on eschatology. That is the theology of the end times. And uh, it was my turn to take one of the sessions. And uh, one of the organizers of the Bible study wrote my name on the board. For some reason, they just wrote Simon G. And uh, at the end of the study, uh, the girls would go up and draw on the board. And one evening when I was teaching, they drew a little a uh, pair of eyes inside the G of my last name. I looked at it and I said, what is that? And it looked like the G was sitting and thinking about the text. And I said, you know what? This is our new mascot for when we do Bible studies on campus. This is contemplative G. And I, I, I picked that because that's the state that I saw those that were at that particular Bible study. That particular Bible study was going so well, I didn't understand why that Bible study was going so well as opposed to some of the other Bible studies that were taking place on campus. I Focused in on this name, Contemplative G, because it's in complete contrast to the Shruggy. The Shruggy says, we don't really know. But Contemplative G says, no, there's something there. I have to find a way to get to what it is, but it's not me who decides that meaning is there. What is it? It's a completely different way of looking, not only at a given text, but at the entire world. It's a different change in worldview, our perspective. And so the goal tonight is to find our way from being a shruggy to being a contemplative G. So here's the destination for where we want to end up tonight. At the end, we want to have an understanding of why believers should study the Word of God. We want to have a method for how to study God's Word. And I want to give to you some of the resources I found most helpful at my time at seminary, my time in personal study, some of the things that I think uh, make remove some of the biggest roadblocks uh, during Bible study. And then really what I want tonight to be about is tearing down the walls that are keeping us out. That is from the system of Bible interpretation that are keeping us from studying God's word. There's a sense in which, and this we can discuss another night, in which apart from the Bible, we can't know anything. That is, God has spoken and he's spoken in his word. Apart from what God has said, we as creatures, created beings can't make sense of this world. That's why we mostly, even believers, find ourselves, like the rest of the world, in the shruggy state. We can't make sense of the world around us. But God has given us His Word to help us make sense of the world. And so that's the destination for where we want to be going. Here's how we're going to be doing it is what our journey tonight is going to look like. Part one, and we'll stop at the end of part one, take some questions, and kind of absorb some of the things. Part one is why personal Bible study? Why should we study the Bible? Why should we as a church study the Bible? And then the second portion of that, why should I study the Bible? We individual believers, what is our responsibility in studying the Word of God? Then part two, after we take uh, some time to discuss, is how to study the Bible. After we convince ourselves why we should, Let's look at how we ought to do this. What is the proper way to engage with the text so that we give God and his word the respect that it deserves and don't leave ourselves in the place of authority? In doing that, we'll answer the question, what am I studying the Bible for? What's my motivation? What are my intentions? And then, finally, a few rules and principles of engagement. How should I study the Bible? Part one. We'll call that an introduction. Let me take a moment to ask the Lord for help before we jump into what we're doing tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We know that apart from your son and what he came to deliver to us, we would be lost without hope adrift in the world. But we praise you that we not only have the work that your son has completed on our behalf, but we have the living eternal word to connect us to you so that we can turn to you at any time and know your will for us, Father. We ask that as we take this time to consider how we ought to prepare ourselves, that we would be faithful to honor you above our own systems, our own methods, our own desires and motivations, but only that the Lord Jesus will be glorified among us tonight, Father. Thank you. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. The Bible. I'm going to ask for some uh, interaction here. You'll see some of the texts up there and I'll ask a few of you to to read uh, when we get to those points. Uh, The first point is understanding what the Bible is. If we're going to interact with it properly, if we're going to have the right level of engagement, we need to know what it is that we're dealing with. God has spoken in his son. Turn with me to Hebrews 1 and if someone would read Hebrews 1 verse 1 and 2. He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Thank you. The first principle in understanding the Bible is that first, we serve a God who speaks. We don't have a God who's far off, distant, inaccessible. God, the living God, is one who communicates with His people. Hebrews 1 tells us that God has spoken most completely, most fully, most finally, in His Son, the Lord Jesus. Times past describes some of the uh, interaction God had with His people in the Old Testament. We saw how He interacted with Adam. We saw how He interacted with Noah, Moses, Abraham. He spoke to them. He even spoke to His people Israel through the prophets. But now, in what the Bible calls the last days, beginning at when Jesus came to Earth, God has spoken through His Son. John one fourteen to 18 says uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us god is so about his communication that the name given to the son the second person of the godhead is the word god is so committed to communication god is so known by his level of communication that we the name given to the lord jesus is the word and John 1 14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory glory as of the uh, Glories of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth We beheld his glory that is God has his own personal glory But he's chosen to express it most fully in the Lord Jesus now he's expressed it in the Lord Jesus The second point, the New Testament authors are proclaiming what they received from Jesus. If someone would read uh, 1 John 1 verses 1 to 4. Father and with the Son Jesus Christ, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Excellent, excellent. The New Testament authors uh, seem clearly here in John, but you'll also find it in Peter and Paul, is that they see themselves as communicating that which they received from Jesus during His earthly ministry. Here you'll notice, John says that we write these things so that your joy may be full. I want to read you a parallel. Which also explains how we can make the connection between what Jesus declared from his time on earth to what the apostles are writing us in the New Testament. This is John chapter 14. I'm already there. You won't have to turn there. John chapter 14, verse 25 to 27. Jesus, speaking to the disciples, says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance... All that I said to you, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Jesus says to his disciples, when I leave, it's going to be beneficial for you. It's beneficial that I go away from you physically so that the Father can send the Spirit. And what he will do is Bring to you remembrance of all that I've taught you. I've spent three years with you. The Spirit will bring to your remembrance all that I've taught you. And with that, I'm giving you my peace. And that's how we see the transition from the first point. God speaking through his son, the Lord Jesus, to the second point of what we have here in the New Testament. Those who were with Jesus or those who spent time with Jesus, as Paul did in seeing Jesus in a vision, they're proclaiming to us what they've directly received from the Lord Jesus. And so when God has spoken most clearly in his son, we're receiving that same message from the authors of the New Testament. We'll come back and examine what uh, the text is in Second Peter. This third point here, the New Testament views all of scripture, and turn with me here to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Would someone read? Verses 16 and 17 there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. given by the of God, and instruct them for doctrine, for the for correction, for instructing righteousness, that a man of God may be complete, sorry, for every good work. Amen. Thank you. This is what uh, theologians call the inspiration of scripture. What that means is you'll see in verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. This word translates directly to God breathed, inspired as in having to do with respiration, God breathed. So we could translate it. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's what this, this word inspiration means. All scripture is breathed out from God. That is, it's from himself. It's not mediated through anything else. He doesn't have a prophet standing there and has to be the interpreter for us. Scripture is coming directly from God. That means it shares his character. It shares his nature. It reveals something true about him and not about something else. All scripture is inspired of God. And we see the benefits of that in verse 17, verses 16 and 17. From that concept that scripture comes directly from God, just as our breath comes directly from us, gives us the concept of inerrancy. That word means that scripture, because it has the same character as God being breathed out by him, scripture is without error and mistakes. Scriptures without error and mistakes. That is, if God is perfect and his word comes directly from him without interacting with anything else, it also is without error and mistake. That is, God cannot lie, so what he says must be true. We see this in Matthew chapter 5, uh, uh-huh. just verse 18, I guess. I don't know why it says 18 to 18. Uh, let's turn there. I want to read that and examine what he's saying there. And if someone gets there before me, please read that for me. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass, and the law shall all be fulfilled. Okay, great. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. Not one... Jot or tittle. My translation says the smallest letter or stroke shall pass. What Jesus was saying there uh, is the equivalent of us saying, uh, you know, we go and dot our I's and cross our T's. Jesus is saying not one dot or cross T, one tiny pen stroke will fail to come to pass. We can depend on God's word with the same level of confidence that we depend on God himself. Jesus says to the Pharisees. In many words, what we mean by inerrancy. The third concept here, and you can see how they necessarily flow into each other, is infallibility. This is another fancy theological word for, means it can't do anything but benefit us. God's word can never lead us into harm. It can only do good to us. Um, there's some... Uh, Usage of this term in Roman Catholicism and in many other places. What we mean is what God's word says in Hebrews chapter 4. And if someone finds that, please read that for us. That's verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight but all. Count. Amen. Thank you. I don't want any of you to be impressed by how quickly he found that. He's using his phone and not an actual text Bible. <laughs> so he doesn't get any extra credit for. <laughs> what we mean by infallibility is that Scripture, God's Word, is always beneficial for us. It always acts in us for a righteous and positive outcome. Let's be careful here. Because sometimes, Scripture's uh, interaction with us can be painful. Sometimes, it can be difficult. But, Scripture interacts with us only in the way that God would interact with us. That is, in a righteous way, in a positive way, according to God's standard. That's why here, we we see it described as a two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. When we have uh, some ailment, sometimes we need surgery performed. Cutting is a damaging process. But sometimes we need something that's painful in order to remove something harmful. The concept of the infallibility of Scripture is that God's Word, when it interacts with us on His terms, will produce positive, good, righteous outcomes. And so this is the Bible we're dealing with. It's inspired, it's inerrant, and it's infallible. So when we say, why should we study the Bible? We first have to answer, what is the Bible? So this so far is the Bible. Why should we study it? It is our life source. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, and I'll read this one myself. Lord Jesus, before he, begins his, uh, before he begins his ministry, he's led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Satan comes to tempt him. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I want to draw your attention to the parallel. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. In Matthew chapter 4, listen to what Jesus says. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. We, man, shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Paul had this exactly in mind. Paul knew what the Lord Jesus said to the devil. Paul tells us in the same way, just as Jesus had confidence to rebuke the devil when he was in the wilderness by going to Scripture... Paul applies that to all of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. This Scripture is how we live. The Christian spiritual life, this is our bread. This is our life source, the Word of God. This brings together what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14. I give you my peace. This brings to us what John said in 1 John we write these things so that your joy may be full. This is the complete contrast to the way the world looks at everything around them. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to make sense of it. We have the Word of God. This is what Second Peter chapter 1, please turn here with me as well. Second Peter chapter 1 tells us about the Word of God. Peter, talking about, uh, let me start at verse 13. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. You remember Jesus spoke to his disciples and said, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit and he will bring to remembrance all that I've spoken to you. Now, Peter is saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you may be able to call these things to remembrance. Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made by him, by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the same as we heard in Hebrews chapter 1. God has spoken in his Son. God has spoken concerning his Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter, again, verse 18, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And this is where I want your attention. Verse 19, So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Peter says this ...is what we're looking to. As we await the coming of our God, this is what we do well to spend our time doing, looking at God's Word. And he gives us reassurance. Verse 20, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And this is what we're spending our time doing today. No Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Why? Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is what we're doing tonight, is finding out what God has said through men he has moved by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has spoken, breathed out his word, and preserved it and given it to us in our scriptures, in the Word of God, the Bible. This is what we're doing tonight. Now, how do we relate to this? Knowing what the Bible is, knowing that it is God's revelation of himself, knowing that it is inspired, inerrant, infallible, how do we relate to this? i want to try and catch up on some time here. Let's go quickly. Our mission relates to the Bible, the Word of God. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. And if anyone finds it, please. And Jesus came and spoke to them. what do we call this uh this command from jesus what is this passage if you have a study bible it should probably say it right at the top this is called the great commission commission. that is the great mission that we've been brought into the great mission our mission is right here this is what we as believers do and I'll tell you that in the original language, there's one verb here in this text. One verb. We read a few. Uh, in our English, it says, go, therefore, and make disciples. We don't need to get bogged down by the by the details. But that's assumed on Jesus' part. Jesus is assuming that you go. That's not a command yet. He says, go, therefore, and this is the one verb. This is the one command. Make disciples. This is the only action that Jesus is commanding. And he, he explains what this making disciples process looked like. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, we saw already from what the Bible is, the Bible contains what God has said to his people and preserved perfectly for us. Specifically, the New Testament and the authors who spent time with our Lord. Jesus says, Make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That is, we study the Bible because without knowing God's word, we can't make disciples. We can't continue the generation by generation by generation faithfulness that we've all been called to, that we all are benefiting from today. We're here because somebody was faithful to this command. We're here because God has preserved the faithfulness of his people And the study of his word so that we might be born into the household of God by the teaching of his word. And we see that this is the practice of the early believers in Acts chapter 2. If you find that, please read that, Acts 2.42. Amen. They continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That is, what the apostles heard from the Lord Jesus from their time with them, that they were proclaiming by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who were added to the church at the very beginning, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrines. That is, our practice is to be in the Bible. We can't tie ourselves to the historical faith if we don't behave the same way they behaved. That is, spending time in God's Word. Our, our relationship to the Word of God is that it produces our fullness. Ephesians chapter 3, and I'll read this one. Paul, speaking, 14, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives His name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length of in height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God that is our relationship to one another is based on the word we ought to be a demonstration to each other in our conduct and in our study so that we help one another comprehend who our God is When we spend time in fellowship and in common study, we find out at deeper levels and at greater heights who our God is. And Paul says this is what our goal in relationship is, in Christian community, is that we might be built up, grounded in love, but able to comprehend what God has done for us in Christ. This same sentiment, you don't have to turn there, is expressed in Colossians 3, verse 14. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. And he talks about all the transformation of life that this produces. How we ought to relate to one another. How we ought to relate to the world. How we ought to relate to God. All these things come from the foundation of God's word and its proper uh, application in our, li- in our lives. These last three. The Word of God is our delight, it is our reward, and it is our light. I, w- I don't want to take the time to go there, but here's the first assignment I want to give to you all. If you go home and take one activity with you, let it be this one. Read Psalm 1, Psalm 19 and psalm 119 1 19 and 119 these three psalms together give a beautiful expression of what the uh, the soul's longing for the word of god should be in a healthy and mature believer you see described in these psalms how they long for the word of god how they begin with the word of god they become established in the Word of God, remain fixed in the Word of God, and refuse to be moved from the Word of God. And how that's not uh, tedious, that's not a struggle, that's not, I have to do my readings this morning. Man, I'm four days behind on my one-year Bible reading plan. I understand, I'm not putting anyone down that has those struggles. I have those struggles. I know what that's like. The point is when we come to the word of God, when we with practice come to uh, come to train ourselves to receive richly from the word of God, we develop this proper appetite. That is it's hard to uh, enjoy good nutritional food if all you've been eating is junk food. You just want more junk food. It takes time to to uh, Practice, train yourself to take in the more nutritious food. And soon, that junk food becomes undesirable. Now, both physically and spiritually, I'm tempted by junk food. But these are my encouragement. On the mornings that, man, I got to get ready for work, I got to shave, I got to take a shower, I got to do all these things. And the Word of God is the last thing on my mind. These are where I go. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. Now, Psalm 119 is more than 150 verses, so, uh, read a portion of it, read just a section of it, read just a few verses. But there you find the relationship of the believer to the Word of God. And so this is our part one of why study the Word of God. Because God has spoken. God has made himself accessible. God has not stuttered. God has not mumbled. God has not hidden what he said. He's made clear who he is and who he wants us to be in relationship to him. And so we study the word of God. Why should I, why should you, each of us individually study the word of God? Because this is our entire life. It becomes our delight It becomes the way we build ourselves up. It becomes the way we build one another up. It becomes the way that we interact with each other to take ourselves to newer heights of comprehending the love of our God. This is why we study the Word of God. We'll wait for part two. Let me stop here give an opportunity to take some questions, maybe review some of the things we've said, um, and get some feedback from you on how we should guide the rest of our discussion going forward. Um, Start with any questions on what we've covered so far. All right, how about a little, uh, little practice, a little review? Uh, What is inspiration? Yes. Mm -hmm. It means it's God breathed. God breathed. And how does that tell us or guide us in how we ought to behave with the word of God? Since it's breathed out, comes from God himself, that tells us what about how we should interact with him. We can go back a few slides. It's breathed out by God. It has the same character as God. We interact with Scripture because it's breathed out by Him. It has the same character as God. We go to God with the, the Word of God with the same confidence. We go to the person of God. Inspiration is sort of the beginning doctrine of for how we interact with the Bible. If we don't have this doctrine of inspiration, we have very little else on which to build our faith. This is uh, what theologians, uh, what apologists, those who give uh, articulated defenses of the faith, this is the starting point for how we defend our faith. This is what makes our faith completely different than every other faith, even the uh, monotheistic religions. No other religion has this doctrine. No other major, no other minor, no other any made-up religion has this doctrine, the inspiration of the Word of God. Islam will say, well, we, God, Allah spoke to Muhammad. But that's a secretive, protected text. Only those who first know the Arabic language have been trained to interact with it. Those guardians and gatekeepers of the Word of God to Allah as uh, the Word of Allah to Muhammad as protected by uh, First Muhammad and his uh, his descendants and his relatives, all of that is a way to keep people out. those religions say, well we have god 's Word, so you can't do this because we're using that authority against you we 're telling you what you can and can't do because we have the Word of God. Our scripture is completely different. The Word of God is the open access of any person to God himself. That is, we don't need another person to stand between us and God. There is nobody that needs a mediator between himself or herself and God if the Word of God is present. Because the, the Word of God, Jesus Christ himself, stands as the mediator between God and man and since the word of God stands as mediator between God and man the only access any individual needs is the word of God the word of God in our religion in our faith is that access to God is proclaimed before anything else the starting point of our faith is inspiration If we don't believe that the word of God is the character, the nature of God himself, the rest of our faith is shaken. There's no foundation to it. So this is why that's the chief beginning point of our study of the scripture. Inspiration. And from that, of course, we get inerrancy and infallibility. Any questions? Comments? Okay. All right. Let's move on to... Part two, what is the purpose of Bible study? Now, of course, we uh, saw in part one a few of the reasons that it's good to that. What is the purpose of studying God's word? Once we're convinced that we should do it, we have to set some goals for when we're going to interact with the word of God. What should our mindset be? What should we go to the text and say, all right, this is my goal when I read and study this. Here's a few. Uh, someone, please find John chapter one verse eighteen. No one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Excellent. The only begotten God, who is at the side of the Father, He has made Him known, or He has explained Him. This is uh, one place in the New Testament that we get a key word that we're going to interact with in just a few minutes. This is the word exegesis that means to draw meaning out of the text you start with the text and you don't put what i think it means into there or what this theologian or commentator has said into the text but we look at the text and find the meaning that's there and pull that meaning out of the text in john chapter one it tells us that this is what our lord jesus does for our relationship between god the father and us The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, Jesus Christ, He has explained God the Father to us. No man can see God at any time. God the Father throughout history has been inaccessible to us. But when we come to the Word of God revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus has taken what's true and glorious and marvelous in God the Father and made that known to all of us. We read already from 2 Timothy chapter 3. We study the Bible in order to be equipped. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. This is a corresponding doctrine. In addition to it being inspired, inerrant, infallible, the word of God is sufficient. This isn't a big theological word. It means it's enough. It's everything we need. We don't need a second or third or fourth thing. This is what uh, Roman Catholicism teaches. The word of God's great. But you need an authority, church history, to help interpret that for you. But Paul says no. Scripture is sufficient so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. So we study the Word of God for everything. There shouldn't be a problem that we come across in life and say, well, I already know everything the Bible says. I got to go figure out what uh, this group of authority says, what this high and respected person says. Look, it's okay to seek consultation from others. But us as believers, knowing that God has spoken into the chaos of the world with His pure and perfect Word, this is our starting point for everything. And if properly traveled our lives, it's our starting point and it's the point to which we return. We study the word of God so that we're equipped for every situation. There shouldn't be something that says, all right, I got to study my Bible and this other thing and then I'll be okay. The word of God is sufficient for his believers. That is, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God's word is sufficient, and it's also necessary. That is, all that God says is sufficient, but it has to be all that he says. We don't take parts of it here. We don't skip those chapters in Leviticus that uh, are so repetitive. We don't uh, skip those genealogies. I know, I skip some of those genealogies. But all scripture is inspired. There has to be a sense when we train ourselves to engage with the word of God. We say we're doing this so that we can be equipped for a good work. We're doing this so that we can be obedient to God. So that we can make disciples. So that we can go to the calling with which God has called us to. First Thessalonians chapter 4. We study God's Word to comfort one another. If there's one reality I continue to be uh, taught over and over in, uh, in life, it's that life is difficult. Life is painful. Life is challenging. I don't think we come across many people who would say, yeah, life's all good. I got it. Everything's fine. If we're honest with each other and ourselves... Life is difficult. Life is terrifying. Most of us live in that terror alone by ourselves, look around at the world and, I don't know, I don't know. It's terrifying place, being alive in the world. The Word of God uniquely grounds us in God. That is, Jesus said to his disciples, we heard in John chapter 14, My peace I give to you my peace I give to you not as the world gives my peace we saw in 1 John chapter 1 write these things that your joy may be full the word of god if we don't study the word of god so as to comfort one another we're missing out on the Greatest experience of fellowship that we have. This is why, if you saw the flyer and his out, why it's selfish not to study the Word of God on your own. It's selfish. The body of God is designed in such a way that every member is necessary. And, what's more, is that every member in obedience to God is necessary. In obedience to God means being in His Word, considering how can I rightly relate to God and how can I rightly relate to my brothers and sisters and how can I rightly relate to the world. We have to study the Word of God in order to know how can we comfort one another. Life is hard. Life is difficult. We should be the most willing to admit that because we're the only ones with an answer to that reality. Life is terrifying but we have the peace of the lord jesus christ we ought to study so we know how to access that peace first peter chapter 2 we study the word of god in order to grow like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word it's how we grow it's our sustenance we study the word of god Because there's no other source of life. There's no other way. Well, if I, uh, set my, uh, clock to pray this amount of time a day, and if I, uh, go and work at this homeless shelter, and if I go and do X, Y, and Z, then I'll be in good standing with God. Or if I just make the world a little place, a little better place, if I, uh, do one act of random kindness, um, if I pass it on, whatever these things that we hear from, Every other authority in the world, every other religious uh, speaker, none of that is sufficient. The word of God is the only place from which we have the energy to move forward. Every action we take, even in the name of God, has no power of God behind it unless it has the word of God behind it. So we study the word of God in order to grow, in order to give our life direction. And then to be set apart, I want you to turn to this one, John chapter seventeen, verse seventeen. And if you find it, please read that. Hmm. Sanctify them by your word is truth. Sanctify them by your sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is Jesus praying in the garden before his final work bearing the sins of the world and he says I'm praying not for the whole world but for those whom you have given me that is all believers of all ages Jesus says this is who I'm praying for he's prayed for the world he says this is who I'm praying for the believers so this is a special category and we're in this special category the special prayer at a special time in the life of our Lord says this his Request to God the Father, His Father, Sanctify this group of people by your truth. And then He gives us the answer because He knows we're listening in on this prayer. Sanctify them, Father, by the truth. Your word is truth. This is how we be who God wants us to be. This is how we become everything we're called to. The man of God being adequately equipped. The newborn babe having the right desires for the pure word. Everything. Every aspect of the believer's life starts here in the word of God. And so that should be our purpose when we go to scripture. We want to know God. We want to be equipped to serve him. We want to be equipped to interact with each other the right way want to grow, and we want to be set apart in this special group that the Lord Jesus has prayed for. Now, let's uh, get to some of the actual practice of how we do all this. I think uh, the process, hermeneutics, this is uh, a big, fancy theology word. Simple definition. Hermeneutics is the art ...and science of interpreting a text. The art and science of interpreting a text. This word hermeneutics we get from uh, Luke, the the Gospel of Luke when Jesus is walking uh, um, on the road to Emmaus. There's the two disciples who don't realize who he is. And he opens the scripture and explains to them all the things concerning himself. From Moses, the law, and the prophets. All the things concerning himself. And that word, and he explained it to them, or he opened up to them. That's the word hermeneuo, from which we get hermeneutics. To explain, to make apparent, to make it visible. So, hermeneutics, and you'll find this in uh, secular usage as well, hermeneutics is the art and science of interpreting a text. It's an art. Because there are some to whom this comes more naturally. It's, uh, it, it's a blessing. It's not something I was uh, blessed with right away. Just like painting. There are some who are naturally good at drawing. But there are techniques which you can practice and employ to make you a better painter. That's why it's also a science. Because there are techniques, systems, and patterns which you can engage To give you a competence in this field. So there are some who are naturally inclined to look at a text and say, "Ah, this is what that text means. But if they're disregarding those rules, if they're disregarding those established systems, we have some grounds to question. Well, how did you arrive at that? We should be sure that they got there the right way. And that's why it's both an art and a science. Because you could be good. At it naturally but you can also work to become better at it now there are all sorts of bad hermeneutics we've crossed out a few of them that is the allegorical hermeneutics this is uh, very common throughout church history you go back to the first five six seven and, and even through today but a lot of times when you read what are called the church fathers uh, they took a text and often made an allegory out of it. Uh, The most common is the book of Revelation. Uh, They take the Revelation and they say, oh, well, this is uh, what uh, the writers are saying. This this character in Revelation uh, corresponds to Nero. This corresponds to this other nation. This corresponds to this event in world history. And they say there's a direct parallel between the elements in this text and elements in the world. And that's an allegorical interpretation where we say, well, this corresponds to this, and so we use this to interpret the world. Allegory, for the same reason that all these other bad hermeneutics are in this bad category, is because it puts us, the reader, the interpreter, in authority over the word of God. That's why this is a bad hermeneutic. An allegorical interpretation of the text whereby we look at it and say, this Corresponds to this. And so that's how we're going to interpret the text. By taking events outside of the Bible and putting it on top of the Bible and reading the Bible that way. That's wrong because that places something other than God and his word as the authority on interpretation. The spiritual hermeneutic. That is when we read something, we immediately go to what is the spiritual interpretation of these things. Um. And let me make a a caveat I should have done a few minutes ago. We don't study these things so that when we come across somebody that employs a bad hermeneutic, that we say, hey, you're doing that wrong. Or, hey, I kind of know better. We can kind of laugh at that guy after he's done preaching. but Don't tell him, though. We're not doing this to puff ourselves up. We're doing this to build one another up. And so... It was common uh, for me when I started studying hermeneutics um, when I was 15, 16 years old, that I would be like, oh, well, that guy interpreted that text wrong, and I'd go to my dad afterwards and be like, hey, why do you do that? You should tell him. You should go talk to him. You and my dad, of course, being much more mature and uh, seasoned than I was and gracious, um, always approached the situation uh, far more kindly than I would have. And so this, we're not studying these things to say, well, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, we're not standing in authority because that, in fact, would be doing and making the same mistake we're accusing them of. That is, a bad hermeneutic is placing ourselves on top of the text as the authority of the text. Now, if we go and hold others accountable in an ungracious manner, that's us standing in authority over them. There is a gracious way to do this. And so, let me return to the spiritual hermeneutic. That is, oftentimes I've heard in preaching... Jesus told Peter to step out of the boat in faith and Jesus is calling you to step out in faith and that's the meaning of this text. That, we'll get to that a little later, may be a valid application of the text. It's not an interpretation of the text. Okay, We'll see what that means a little bit later. But a spiritual hermeneutic Is one that says, we discover the meaning of the text by a spiritual reality we're aware of. The spiritual reality of God calling us to live our life by faith. That's a good, true reality. But it doesn't mean it's in every text that you see it in. A personal hermeneutic. A personal hermeneutic is, what does this text mean to me? This is when I went to those shruggy Bible studies, the most frequent question is, what does this text mean to you? What does this verse mean to you? And there were as many answers as there were participants. What does this mean to you? A bad hermeneutic says, what do you think God's word is saying? See, we want to get to the place where we're contemplating the word of God we're digging in we're focusing on what God has said not what we're hearing God say a theological hermeneutic this is common in which you see some who have their theology all set and when they go to a text all they're looking to do is make the verses fit their theology I don't want to give any examples you have the opportunity to uh, discuss and see if I'm guilty of that uh, myself. That's something I have to do when I come to text. Am I reading this because I want it to mean this? Or am I reading this because that's what God is saying here? That is, our theology comes from our interpretation. Our interpretation doesn't come from our theology. That is what God says is primary... And how we respond and understand what God says is secondary. The last one, a social hermeneutic. You'll often hear, and I had the misfortune of being enrolled in one of these classes, a feminist theory, a feminist examination of the book of Exodus. That is, we look at God's word and say, how do certain people groups, social groups, interact with this? How do we take this and match it with this? And to say, this is what the Word of God means in this situation. Let's contrast it with some good hermeneutics. And you'll notice it's a good hermeneutic. It's not multiple hermeneutics. A good hermeneutic has these qualities. It's historical. That is, history gives us boundaries by which we by which we uh, interpret scripture. It's, a good harmonic is grammatical. We follow the rules of grammar. The interpretation of the text depends on how the author wrote it. It's exegetical, it's literary, it's helpful. Let me go to the next slide because you'll see all of these things in the next one. The only one I want to take your attention to here on this slide is it's prayerful. We as believers have a special access to the word of God that non-believers do not. Because we have the Holy Spirit of God. The same Holy Spirit of God who moved these men to speak for God is the same Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And so we have access to the author of the text within us. And so it's necessary that we be prayerful, that we be submissive to God when we attempt to interpret His Word. Okay. Here's a few tips, principles. These are good questions I ask myself and make sure I'm doing when I come to any text. Measure in the right units. Measure in the right units. And I already put it there. The basic unit of Scripture is the book. The basic unit of Scripture is the book. Oftentimes, sometimes out of necessity but sometimes just out of uh, ease. We think of the Bible in chapters and verses, chapters and verses, chapters and verses. In fact, those didn't even exist in the Bibles till the 16th century, the 17th century. When the author was writing Scripture, they wrote with a complete thought in mind. Those thoughts generally when we come to the bible is a book so when we're reading the gospel of matthew matthew had the whole gospel in mind and so if we have a particular interpretation of a chapter and a verse it ought to correspond to the rest of the book we shouldn't interpret in isolation it has to be in coherence with the rest of the book otherwise you produce what's called a proof text you're just developing something that matches with your theology or your own interpretation. It has to match the unit of scripture. So interpretation must be done by the unit. Assume the clarity of the text. Principle two. So what we talked about, we have the Holy Spirit. And so we assume that when God speaks, he speaks in a way that's to be understood. We don't want to go to a text and say, well, this is really hidden. I have to make sure I go to multiple different levels to find the real meaning of it that regular people can't get. That's the wrong view we talked about All the religions having. God's Word is there in order to be understood. And so that gives us a corresponding principle that's not up there. Uh, but assume the clarity. That means when you come to a difficult passage in Scripture, assume that the clearer passages of Scripture are guidelines for how to interpret the less clear passages of Scripture. That is, Scripture interprets Scripture. You go to a clear portion of Scripture and use that as a guideline, a boundary for what a difficult passage may mean. Assume the clarity of the Scripture. Genre dictates interpretation. Genre dictates. That is, a psalm speaks a certain way, a story, narrative speaks a certain way, a sermon speaks a certain way. We practice this in everyday life. When I talk to my boss, I speak in a certain way. When I talk to my dad, I speak in a certain way. When I talk to my nieces, I speak in a certain way. If I were to speak to a police officer, I would speak in a certain way. We know that different occasions call for different types of speech. In the same way, the genres of Scripture have different rules for how we ought to be careful for our interpretation. That is, when we come to a proverb, we ought not to interpret it as a hard and fast rule that if you do this, this will happen. That's how some of the the proverbs read. If you do this, this will happen. Proverbs are words of wisdom. That is, God is telling us how his created order functions, but we know the reality of sin. A broken world means that... The created order doesn't always behave orderly. God tells us how we ought to behave, and He tells us the outcome that's associated with that right behavior. But it doesn't mean that always is a guarantee. A story is told. You see thematic elements at the beginning of the gospel, and you trace those through. Maybe they're not even said explicitly but the way those themes behave from beginning to middle and end give you a little sense of what the author is doing. That is, we read in Matthew chapter 4, uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In Luke chapter 4, when Luke is writing the same situation, Jesus responds to Satan and says, man shall not live by bread alone, and nothing else. He doesn't finish the thought. Why why doesn't he write the whole point of what Jesus is saying to Satan? Why doesn't Luke say, not bread alone, but by the word of God? Because Luke is developing this theme. Luke is a doctor. You'll see the elements of wellness, of being whole, being cured of sickness throughout the gospel of Luke. And so when we hear Jesus say to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone. Luke's original reader will be, well, what what does man live by? What, what does healthy living look like? And we know because we know who Luke was writing to, Theophilus, probably a non-believer. Luke is trying to make his original reader ask that question. Man shall not live by bread alone. And then he just keeps going. He doesn't say what man shall live by so as to make his reader stare at the text to read all the way through and say, you shall live by what God has said in the person of Jesus. And so you have the answer for what shall man live by, but it's not said in words. It's said in the life of Jesus. And so genre dictates the author's intended meaning, right? Author's intended meaning. Aim for the aim, A-I-M, author's intended meaning. This is the interpretation. There's one interpretation of every text. Every text has one interpretation. What the original author meant for the original reader to understand. There are many applications. This is that second to last point, interpretation before application. There are many, many applications, but there's one interpretation. If we have to explain a reality that didn't exist in the mind of Paul, that didn't exist in the mind of David when he wrote the Psalms, it is not the interpretation of that text. If we have to say something that exists in our lifetime but didn't exist in that lifetime... That's not the interpretation of the text. That may be a valid application, but it's not the interpretation of that text. And why do we prefer interpretation over application? Application is fine, but we need interpretation first. Because that interpretation is what's inspired, what's breathed out for God. So if God has spoken clearly and everything he said is sufficient to equip us for every good work then that interpretation is what we need more than the application. The application is tied in, but there is no authority behind an application. There's authority behind an interpretation. The application is our response to that interpretive uh, definition. We respond to an interpretation by providing an application. There is one interpretation of every text. History is a boundary. We discussed that one. Interpretation before application. Revelation is progressive. That is, we look upon what David and the Old Testament authors have said and realize we may have known a little more than them when we come to it. Peter talks about the Holy Spirit revealed things to us which the Old Testament writers, the prophets of old, longed to look upon. They longed to see they looked forward in history, longing to see certain things that we look back in history to see. So realize that we have a fuller understanding of certain things than some original authors. But that doesn't mean we import, right? We take from the new and press it into the old. The danger here is in reading things that are meant for Israel and saying, well, that means that's for the church. There are things that God has spoken to his people Israel that they didn't understand how that fully worked. When he talked about, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, they believed God because he's God. They were responding in faith. But we know how that works. We know that when it comes to the cross of Christ, God has taken our guilt and put it on Christ and has taken his righteousness and put it upon us. We know how God will take out of heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. We know how in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel asks, can these dry bones live? And God says, they can live. We know how. Ezekiel may not have. So remember to consider the progress of history. Let me finish with a few resources. This is really the last uh, page here. Get a good study Bible. Get a good study Bible that, um, and we can discuss this afterwards maybe, uh, has the right philosophy of translation. The best Bible study, um, and you can disagree with me, the best translation is the New American Standard. And I say that because their philosophy is that they take uh, a word-for-word translation approach and they take a uh, concept-for-concept approach. So they're not translating the Greek meaning into the English meaning. They're trying to translate a Greek word into an English word. And it's a little bit more difficult on the reading, but this doesn't have to be your personal uh, reading Bible, but it should be a study Bible. The ESV is another good example. They're trying to translate word for word. They're trying to translate what was in the mind of the original author, what he wanted to communicate to the original audience. The New King James is a good example of this. Uh, these are all good, good ones. The New American Standard the ESV the new king james uh the NIV is decent but you're getting a little further uh you want to avoid what is called a dynamic equivalence of translation that is where they try to take a um a, a meaning of something and interpret it in a way that might apply to us uh that is uh the worst example is uh something like the message bible um, they say, well, how would uh, we apply this to our lives today if we understood it? And then they try to give that as the translation. So get a good study Bible. Uh, be in faithful uh, community and contact with teachers at your local church. Uh, this is a great book, uh, Basic Bible Interpretation by Roy B. Zuck. It's about 120 pages. uh gives you a full overview of the things we talked about today. If you want something a little bit more advanced, the Hermeneutical Spiral by Grant Osborne This is a lot more advanced It's about 350 pages uh, But it's very comprehensive it's, uh, The subtitle is A Comprehensive Introduction to Hermeneutics uh, A Medium Approach About 200-220 pages Is Toward an Exegetical Theology I recommend that one if you are studying the Bible so as to prepare uh, Bible studies, prepare sermons, prepare Sunday school classes of all levels, uh, that's a good one. It's uh, it's not as advanced as the Hermeneutical Spiral, but it tells you how to go from Bible interpretation to preparing Bible delivery. Bible.cc is a great website. Um, there's free commentaries, all sorts of translations. They even put you know four or five translations all right next to each other, so you can read. It th- same time, they have interlinears, which is, they put the Greek text, and underneath they put, uh, the American, uh, the English translations, and they tell you whether it's a verb, it's, uh, an adverb, a noun, uh, so that you can really see how the words interact with each other, and so you're getting an, a uh, translation based on, um, based on the original grammatical behaviors of the text. Uh so interlinears are helpful and they also have a lot of dictionaries and lexicons which help you uh do word studies. And then if you're interested in learning Greek, uh there's a daily dose of Uh it pairs with Learn to Read New Testament Greek by David Allen Black. So David Allen Black is the author of Learn to Read New Testament Greek. It's a good uh basic uh Greek grammar. So you can probably do it in a summer Uh, three months of spending about 20 minutes a day um, going chapter by chapter, and then about a year of doing that. You can learn the concepts in about uh, a summer, three months, and then practicing it for a full year. You'll probably get a good handle on on Greek. And Daily Dose of Greek is an online website that has actual instructors with their video lectures recorded going through that grammar. Um, We'll skip the review page. Uh, because you are all experts now and you can answer all those questions and you don't need me to answer any of that for you. Um, so, this is just a, a word cloud I made. I punched in all the notes I had into a program and, uh, this is the picture it came up with. So, uh, that's, that's it. That is the end. Let me, uh, stop for any questions and then we can close and, uh, get going. You referenced, um, earlier, John 17, 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, So a few things that come to bear upon this text. Um, One, what is the original author intending for us to understand here? That's the first thing. Uh, A few of the things that are present in this text um, are historical context. Um, When Jesus prays, your word is truth. What would the historical understanding of the original readers and what Jesus uh, in his time, when Jesus said that in his language, your word is truth. That would have had a certain meaning. So the historical meaning of your word, Jesus being a Jew, would have had a certain meaning when he said your word is truth. A Greek speaker, on the other hand, when they heard word or logos, would have a whole range of meaning for word. But when Jesus speaks it, being from that specific culture, being from that uh, specific religious tradition, says your word, speaking to God the Father, he knows what that means. It limits it to... The, what at that time was the Old Testament. What it is uh, that we discussed coming directly from God. Your word is truth. That is no other uh, people in the history of the world had a relationship to God that the Jews did. Because they had the word of God. And so when Jesus says sanctify them by your word. He says that relationship to God which is mediated through the written word that's been revealed from God that is the process by which God wants to transform the relationship between the individual and God himself Um, so that's only a few hermeneutical principles that we discussed coming to bear on that situation Um, and there's more but that's a good introduction yes sir So the we we come across the term uh hermeneutics in um, Matthew uh Luke chapter twenty-four. Um, and this is Luke twenty-four, verse twenty-seven. And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And so this word he explained to them that's hermeneu, that is he made plain to them. So The picture of the situation is a good picture of what's happening to us. They knew the Old Testament. They were disciples. They were walking from one city to the other. And they read the Old Testament, but just as they couldn't see Jesus, he was present with them. They knew somebody was with them, but they didn't realize it was Jesus. Hermeneutics is the process by which we make plain the things that are there, but we're having difficulty seeing. And so hermeneutics, when applied to the the word of God, is we often see things with things in front of our eyes. Hermeneutics is the process of removing those obstacles and also making the things that are already there more visible. So Jesus finally reveals himself to them and they realize who he was. So a good hermeneutic is when we realize what God's word is actually saying rather than what we've been blind to the whole time. Good, you've uh, given me plenty of extra time. Any, any other questions? Yes, sir. I think about God's Word in creation from Washington mm-hmm. as we become defiled, we mm-hmm. drop shoulders, we're unbelievers, right. mm-hmm. the Word of mm-hmm. So when you get home, when you go to the Word, you wash. And you have to say about that. Right, I, I think that's a, that's a great practice. Thank um, Paul uses that exact metaphor um, in Romans chapter 12, um, you know, sanctified by the washing of the word. Um, when he's talking about living our life as a holy sacrifice and he talks about the renewing of our mind, he talks about sanctifying by the word, by the washing of the word. Right? The renewing of our mind by the washing of the word. And so uh, that's, that's exactly right. We, uh, we are not of this world, but we're in this world. And as we're in this world, we uh, pick up the fragrance of where we've been. Um, every time I leave uh, an Indian restaurant, it's obvious uh, where I've been to wherever I go in the next place. So you can talk to my mom about that. Um, so we're in this world. We pick up the fragrance of the world. But that fragrance shouldn't be coming from us. We should just have the opportunity to remove the things that have been infected with it um, and put on new garments of righteousness. Uh, so that it's... um and that's similar to what the God Word says. We're supposed to be cleansing ourselves daily. When we commit sins, we're supposed to confess our sins to the yes. Lord so we can renew our fellowship with Him. Right. Um, so that we're set apart, set apart from the world to Him. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not of our own. Right, that, that's exactly right. Uh, our... First response to God after uh, an act of sin or a moment or a period of sin is to confess. Um, that confession rests on what we know about God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so the the truth that we gain from Scripture is the reality that God is faithful and just. And you encounter all sorts of attributes and character of God so that we know how we ought to respond. We We can trust God's word because it tells us God is faithful and just. And so we know how we ought to respond to a just and faithful God. Um, So that's absolutely correct. Anybody else? Yes. Yeah, exegesis uh, means to draw out of the text. And so uh, let me give you a, a corresponding word. So there's exegesis, which means to take something that's there and to draw it out. And there's eisegesis, which is to have a, a text and we put a meaning into that text. So eisegesis, you can, it's I-S, so you can say that like into. So putting a meaning into the text, that's eisegesis. Exegesis is what we want to be doing, is where we're taking the meaning that's there and pulling it out. Um, so you said eisegesis is a corresponding word, but it's, it, it would be an example of bad hermeneutics. Bad hermeneutics, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So we want to avoid the trap of putting our own authority on top of the word. Well, God's word uses these words, but we're going to put the meaning into those words. That's putting our own authority above that. Um, so exegesis, good. Eisegesis, bad. Any other questions? Okay, great. Uh, let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We know that uh, apart from your word and your revelation, we can do nothing. We have no access to you, and we have no ability to live as we should, and we have no ground for relating to the world and to your people. Well, we thank you that these things have been given to us. You've given us your Son, and along with him, all things through your word. So we praise you for these realities, and we ask that you would prepare us to do the work of diving deep into your word so that we can go forth from there and do every other work that you've called us to, Father. We praise you for who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us, Father. Thank you for all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus.